Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for When the Hands of Esau Replace Love the Stranger, The Corruption of Jewish Power with Rabbi Avidan Friedman. And I would like to thank our co-sponsors for today's program, Congregation Orzion in Phoenix, and would love to welcome Andre Ivory to introduce today's guest speaker. Thank you, Alex. It is a pleasure for Congregation Orzion to co-sponsor this program this morning. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce Rabbi uh, Avidan Friedman. Rabbi Friedman completed um, a master's degree in Jewish education at the Azraeli Graduate School and received rabbinic or- ordination from Chove- Yeshivat Hovavei Torah uh, and from the Israeli rabbinate. He's an educator at the Shalom Hartman Institute's high school and post-high school program and an activist who founded Yan Shuf, an organization dedicated to establishing moral limits for Israeli weapons exports. You can learn more about what Rabbi Friedman um, um, and his activism and his teachings at yanshuf.org. It's my pleasure, Rabbi Friedman, to welcome you here uh, today, and I look forward to hearing your wonderful words. Thank you so much, Andre, and thank you um, to all of you. It's an honor to be here with you. Good morning, good afternoon, or over here in, in Israel, in Efrat, it is good evening for us. Um, I hope wherever all of you are, you are um, healthy, in good health. Uh, these are difficult days in the world, in the Jewish world, um, certainly in Israel. And um, and the words the words I have to share today, um, let's, we will start to share them. Um, certainly, I hope we'll have will have resonance, um, I think, in in unexpected ways or ways that I didn't necessarily expect beforehand. The blurb that I had sent to Alex back in August read, Trends in Israeli society today highlight the crucial choice that the Jewish state is faced with as the Jewish people face the moral challenge of power. More and more Jewish power reflects an approach to this challenge that is diametrically opposed to the approach espoused by the... When I wrote that in August, um, it sounded very, very different, I have to say, than it does now um, after October 7th. And on the one hand, I have to put it out right right away from, from the get-go to, to speak about the corruption of Jewish power in, in our world now, when the moral corruption that surrounds us and that attacks us is is so much more live and egregious and offensive and and threatening. It it feels a little bit jarring to me. I'll I'll be honest with you. You know, we're now now is the time to speak about the corruption of Jewish power with everything else that's going on in the world. I want to recognize that discomfort, but on the other hand, I want to say that that despite this, the Jewish ethic of rebuke is not to comfort ourselves by looking at the world and saying that the world isn't doing things right. It isn't to say because you have a beam in your eyes, I won't pay attention to the to the stick in between my teeth, but it's the very opposite. Even in these difficult times, it is to to engage in self-reflection. 
Um, and as the dating that I of of the description that I mentioned suggests, this is a, a deep problem. This is a deep challenge that Israel and that the Jewish people have been facing and continue to face. And the truth is that the events of October 7th shed a different kind of a light and and add a different urgency and meaning to to these issues that that I hope that we'll get to. So what I want to do with you in the next 40 minutes or so is to touch on something that I think as a human being, as a Jew, as a rabbi, as an activist, something that I feel has gone deeply wrong with our relationship with power, the Jewish people, the Jewish state's relationship with power. I want to speak about the ramifications of that, and I want to present some resources from our Jewish text that can help us to get back on track. I'll be totally honest with you. When I chose the title of the class, I didn't even know that it would fall out before this week's parsha, the final parsha in the in the book of Genesis, in the book of Rashid Parshat Vayechi. I didn't know that. And you'll certainly believe me when I say that I didn't know back in August when I chose the title what our world was going to look like and the challenges that we were going to be facing. So it's really crazy that if we want to get right to the title of our talk today, the idea of the hands of Esau, and I want to access that through our parsha, the place to go is going to be the verse in this parsha that mentions none other than Hamas, literally. And the verse we have before us in, in Genesis 49, Shimon v'Levi achim, klei Hamas mechirotahem. Shimon and Levi are brothers, their weapons are tools of lawlessness. Their weapons um, are tools of, of Hamas. What's going on here? Jacob has gathered his children around him on his deathbed, and he is blessing them. Except that for the first few children, he doesn't bless them. He actually does something which sounds a lot a lot more like cursing them and, and criticizing them. And what he is criticizing here with Shimon and Levi is their violence, um, either or maybe because both of the incidents of Shechem and, and what they did to the inhabitants of the city of Shechem attacking the city in retribution, in vengeance for the rape of Dina, and, and possibly, at least in the Midrash, it's also understood as a rebuke for their actions and their role in the sale of Joseph. But what does this curse mean? What, what are these clay Hamas? And so Rashi says the following. Rashi says, Omanot zoshel retzicha chamas hu biyadehem mibirkat esav hizo omanot shelohi vatem chamastem oto himeno. The art of murder has been stolen by you because it is from Esau's blessing. This art is his and you stole it from him. Chamas in Hebrew means um, it means theft. It means something which has been stolen. And what Yaakov is criticizing, what Jacob is criticizing, is that Shimon and Levi, by taking up arms, you have taken on the methods of Esau. Esau is the one who is given the blessing, you will live by your sword. And when Shimon and Levi, you acted, and you acted vengefully, and you acted with violence against the people of Shechem, you took up arms. You took up the methods, the clay Hamas. You stole the methods of Esav. Hakol kol Yaakov. The voice is the voice of Jacob. Hayadaim yede Esav. Hands, that's the work 
of Esau. But what does it mean? I want to get to a, a more fundamental difference between Yaakov and Esau's perception of the world that is reflected in their final encounter where we meet a brilliant play on words of this idea of kol, hakol kol Yaakov. And in their final encounter, the final encounter between Yaakov and Esav, where Yaakov was frightened, he didn't know what to expect, he was sending gifts, but then when finally he meets Esav, they embrace, and then they have this conversation. And Esav says, Vayomer Esav, yeshli rav, achi lecha asher lach. Esav says, I have so much, you don't need to send me all of these things, you can keep all of these things. And Yaakov responds to him, he says, please, please take this from me. As opposed to Esav who says, I have Rav, I have a lot. Yaakov says, Yesh li kol. I have everything. Hakol, and here it's not with a kuf, meaning the voice of Jacob, but with a kaf, the all of Jacob. Jacob has a perspective on life that says, I have everything. Even if he has no thing, Jacob is able to say that I have everything. And so what I want to suggest is that the fundamental difference between the perspective of Esav, who uses his hands, and the perspective of Yaakov, is the difference between quantity and quality. And this is a very important question when it comes to a person's approach to power. I don't know anyone who applied this question more precisely to our context in modern day Israel than David Ben-Gurion. So I wanna to listen to his words in order to understand what does that mean, an approach to life which is about quantity, about having a lot, which is Esav, versus an approach which is about quality and therefore is able to say, even without very much quantity, I have everything. Let's listen to some unbelievable words of David Ben-Gurion. And he wrote the following in an essay called Uniqueness and Destiny. Throughout the generations, since the time of Joshua until the wars of the IDF, we have been the few against the many. Even if we succeed, and I believe that we will, to bring millions more Jews to Israel, we will still be the few against the many. Only if we are faithful to our historic Jewish destiny and its vision will we stand. In our moral and intellectual capacities, the small and wondrous Jewish nation is no less than the greatest of nations. And our education must aim to develop these capacities to the maximum. Only by their strength will we survive in a world of competition, hatred, and oppression. And in their merit, we will be able to show the world a new path, a path of peace, justice, freedom, and human solidarity, not through lecturing or moralizing, but by being a model in our lives, our regime, and our policies. For it is incumbent on Israel to be a model nation. David Ben-Gurion is saying, as far as quantity goes, the Jewish people have never been all that strong. We've always been an itsy-bitsy little people, and we always will be. If quantity is going to be what we depend on, we're in a lot of trouble. When we rely on quantity, 
we doom ourselves. And I want to take a moment and, and think about October 7th. We were the, the Israeli government, the Israeli army, we were so certain in our power. We were so certain that we had so much power and we had so many means and technology and we were doing everything so that in the balance of powers, we had much, much more. We had more power. We had more quantity. That's a conception that that was that was destroyed on October 7th. It didn't happen. It didn't work. Now, some people say, well, do you know what the solution is? More power, more quantity. If we thought we had enough, we didn't have enough. We just need more and more and more. But Ben-Gurion is telling us, look in a different direction. Let's take a look at quality, what is remarkable about the Jewish people. And what we really need to depend on is going to be the quality, quality of our understanding, of our intelligence, and also of our moral fiber. The quality of our moral fiber and our moral policies as a light unto all nations. Now, this idea is very, very deeply embedded in the Jewish ethic of power, which is what we're thinking about tonight or this morning. I would say, actually, it is the essence of the Jewish ethic of power, the idea of quality over quantity. And it goes back to the Torah. When the Torah speaks about a king, the institution of power, the Torah says the following, he, the king, shall not keep many horses or send people back to Egypt to add to his horses. Horses is military power. Since God has warned you, you must not go back that way again. And he shall not have many wives, lest his heart go astray nor shall he amass silver and gold to excess. Now, to have many wives isn't just about a, a certain sexual morality, but it is probably more so about diplomatic relationships. Because as we see very clearly, especially from Solomon, when you want to create a relationship with another country, you marry into the family. And so the Torah here is limiting, is saying you cannot have too much military power. You cannot have too much diplomatic power. You cannot have too much economic power. A statesman, any normal human being thinking about statescraft, thinking about politics, says this is crazy. Every country wants to have the maximum amount of power. That's that's what a, a country wants to amass in order to be as safe as possible, in order to take as good care as possible of its citizens. How can the Torah come and say that we are going to limit your quantities? And I think the prophet Isaiah echoes these limitations, and he really puts his finger on what it's all about. And Isaiah in the second chapter says this, says, Isaiah echoes exactly the same ideas of the Torah, and he says, the land and criticizing the king, the land was full of silver and gold. There is no limit to their treasures. The land is full of horses. There is no limit to their chariots. The land is full of idols. The idols, again, is the relationship with other nations. And here he puts his finger on it. What does all of this mean at the end of the day? They bow down to the work of their hands. 
to what their own fingers have wrought. Make no mistake, Isaiah isn't just talking about the idea of idols. Isaiah is saying that this attitude, a quantitative approach to power, at the end of the day, what are you doing? You are worshiping the works of your own hands. You are worshiping what you have attained, the power that you have attained. And when you do that, your downfall is inevitable. That's real politik. That's how real life politics works. It's always just a matter of time until a bigger fish comes along. There's always going to be a bigger fish. That's the history of nations. You amass power, you amass power. But at some point, someone else comes and takes over. And so Isaiah finishes this rebuke and he says, human, human, human beings shall be humbled and mortal brought low. Oh, do not forgive them. Or do not, do not raise them up. That's the quantitative approach. It's a real life approach. It's a political approach to power. It's what the world does. But if we as the Jewish people are meant to be an eternal people, an Amhanetzah, we are supposed to bring a different voice to the world. We are meant to bring the voice of Jacob, Hakol Kol Yaakov. And this is the voice, not of quantity, but of quality. What does that mean? And what does that look like? Rabbi Cook, Rabbi Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Cook, spoke about this voice. And he spoke also about the chance of this voice being heard in the world. And Rabbi Cook said the following. We left world politics of a coercion that hid within it an inner desire. Meaning when the Jewish people was exiled, when we left the political stage, we were coerced, we were forced to, but there was something in there that, that there was a hidden desire that was something that we actually needed. Until the right time comes when it will be possible to run a kingdom without evil and barbarism. This is the time for which we hope. The wait is necessary. Our souls are revolted by the horrific sins of political leadership during bad times. Rabbi Cook is speaking during the First World War, and he is summing up thousands of years of human suffering and bloodshed at the hands of all kinds of different political sources and political powers. And he is saying politics has always equaled barbarism and evil. And that wasn't something the Jewish people could have anything to do with. But he says, now the time can already, now the time comes very near that the world will progress and we can already start to prepare ourselves that we will be able to run our regime on the foundations of good wisdom, honesty, and clear divine inspiration. Jacob sent Esau his cloak of majesty, let my master pass before me. And here Rabbi Cook is quoting, is referencing the very verses that we saw, that interaction, that final interaction between Jacob and Esau. And he says, the Midrash says that Jacob passed over a cloak of majesty, the cloak of sovereignty to Esau. It is not proper for Jacob to be involved in politics when it must be saturated with blood and the demands and demands being skillful and evil. We only received the basic necessary foundations in order to found a nation, but then we were ejected from sovereignty. 
We have been spread out among the non-Jews and planted among them deep in the ground until the songbird's time come and the turtle dove is heard in our land. Rabbi Cook is saying for a very long time, this world was a world that was dominated by the hands of Esau, the hands of Esav, Yudei Esav. And so we handed over the keys. We knew there was no way to create a state, a nation built on ethics. But he felt that the time was coming very soon. What was actually coming that he didn't see was the Holocaust. He was writing this during the First World War. Of course, the Holocaust doesn't represent human progress, but the horrors of the Holocaust and the tragedies of the Holocaust did, were able to do somewhat for humanity what the horrors of World War I unfortunately did not do. And to a certain extent, out of the horrors of the Holocaust started to be developed in humanity, international humanitarian rights, and international conventions that were meant to prevent another Holocaust from happening. Rev. Cook's idea that the world was progressing actually started to, to, to be developed, but his vision wasn't for the world, it was for us. And some years later, Israel is established. From that point, I think that Rev. Cook's words change from being a prediction to being a test. It's the test of our power. And the question is, and the test is, are we ready to return to power? Are we ready to take back our cloak? If we have the courage to ensure that our policies as a Jewish state will be guided by the values of the good and wisdom and honesty, then it means that we are ready to return to power. But if we refuse, if we insist on continuing with the hands of Esav, then what Rabbi Cook's words are saying is essentially, essentially, we are not ready. This is our test. And even if you would say, even if you would argue that if we would assume the hands of Esav, it's something that will work for us, it would be something that it's it's what we need to do. You know, that's the arguments. All of these prophecies are very nice to study, and all of these philosophies are very nice, but at the end of the day, the argument always goes, well, there's war, and there are people's lives on the line, and this isn't how, this isn't how we need to work. We need to work the way the world works. But I want to argue that if we, if we ignore this moral call to ethical use of power, if we ignore it, then even if physically we survive, we, we would be destroyed. We would be destroying ourselves because we would no longer be us. These are the words of former Chief Rabbi Herzog. And, and the words on the screen right now were published in an unbelievable collection of statements um, that was called, the collection is called Against Terror. And these were some more than a hundred statements after Rabbi Herzog signed on to a letter with 240 other major figures decrying and condemning Jewish acts of reprisal and revenge. We're talking about in the 1930s, before the state of Israel, where Arab terror is just starting to really hit the Jewish people. And, and within that context, one voice within the Jewish state in, in pre-state Jewish community is, 
We need to do whatever it takes in order to show them that we're serious. We need to do whatever it takes in order to show them that they don't want to mess with us. And if that means, if that means even killing innocents, that's what it's going to take. And against those calls, Rabbi Herzog said, what value will the building of our national home have if it will be built by the sword being used against innocent people walking in the streets of Jewish cities? What value is that what we have returned to the land of Israel and to the state of Israel? Is that is that what it means to, to do it? Even if it would ensure our survival, it wouldn't ensure our survival because we wouldn't be us. We wouldn't be doing what the Jewish people is meant to be doing. This is the test. And the test has many versions and many stages and many variations. This test of, of power. It's a new test for the Jewish people. It's one that we haven't faced for, for 2,000 years as a people. And some of the time we do better on these tests. And some of the times we do much, much worse. And some of the tests are easier and some are are harder and they're harder and they're easy in different ways. Now, as I said, and, and as Andre mentioned, when I originally planned this talk, it came from activism of, of a number of years around one particular test, which I feel, unfortunately, and it hurts me to say this as a, as a flag-bearing and a flag-waving Zionist who made Aliyah, but, but there is a test that we, one of these tests we're failing at quite miserably. And what I wanted to speak to you about was, was that test and, and also the way that, that that failure was starting to leak into, into Israeli society in even more direct and sinister ways. The, the test I wanted to speak to you about was about weapons sales. The fact that unlike any other Western country, essentially, Israel does not have any moral limitation on arms sales, on its weapon sales, which is enshrined in law. Meaning Israel, the state of Israel, is one of the 10 largest weapons exporters in the world. And and weapons export isn't a, a very, uh, maybe pretty business. But certainly after October 7th, I think um, I can state it with even more certainty, but, but it was never something I actually questioned. Weapons in our broken world do have a legitimate and moral use, as far as I'm concerned. As far as my belief system is concerned, there is legitimate use for weapons, and that's to defend human lives. And so as long as we are making weapons to defend innocent people, and even if we would be selling weapons that go to defend people, I don't have a problem with that. I would call that uh, a success on this test of power. That's, that's important to do. Israel also sells weapons to regimes that have no sense of human rights, that, that commit brutal human rights violations. And, and that means that, practically speaking, I find myself, as a Jew, as an Israeli citizen, a silent and unwilling accessory, a partner in these human rights violations, in genocide, in murder. In rape, I, I as a as a member of Israeli society, as a voter in Israeli elections, if my government allows Israeli arms dealers to sell weapons 
to other governments that they know with relative certainty are going to misuse them, are not going to use them morally, then I am I'm a partner. I am complicit in those crimes in, in some way. And, and to me, this is really, as I see it, the very worst failure of Rev Cook's test, because the way that people justify this policy, which is, again, it's it's not that this is happening against the law. This is the policy of the state of Israel to allow these sales. And this policy is justified in the name of realpolitik, in the name of this is how the world works, in the name of, well, we need power. We need all the friends we can get. We need all of the money we can get. We need all of the power we can get. And so that's just the way the world works. To me, this is a failure of the moral test. This is an insistence that the world is still managed and is still run completely and only by barbarism and by evil. And this is an insistence that there is no way to run a country based on the principles of good and, and ethics. And, and the truth is that as far as this issue goes of arms sales, the process that Rev. Cook talks about is really happening in the world because the world has actually been getting better. It wasn't too long ago. It wasn't um, much more than a decade ago that a, an international treaty was signed, an international um, agreement was signed in order to limit arms sales to human rights violators. And that is a treaty that 110 states in the world are committed to. And unfortunately, Israel isn't there yet. But so this is a, a situation where, where countries have, have made that step. And instead of leading the way, instead of being the light unto the nations on this issue, unfortunately, tragically, painfully, Israel is, is lagging behind. And Israel finds itself with, with Russia and with China as far as its policies. That is a failure that I have in many ways increasingly over the last seven years tried to do everything that I can to fix because I feel like that is a failure that that the Jewish people, that the state, the people of the state of Israel really just for the most part don't know about and don't understand the kinds of things that we're complicit with. And I really have confidence in our people that, that when people know about this and when they understand this, it's something that we don't want to be involved with. We don't want to be engaged with it. We don't want to be implicated in all of these, in all of these crimes. This isn't the Israel that we dream of. This isn't the Israel that we believe in. This isn't the Israel that we that we aspire to, that we aspire to see as a light un, unto the nations. What's hard about this particular failure, I would say, one of the things that's very hard to get people to understand it and to care about it is that it's also, it's far away. It's far away and it isn't something that is seen and it's something that people don't hear about and something that's, I have to say, is actually covered up pretty well by the powers that are interested in, in covering it up. Before, even before October 7th, we started to see very clearly, even here in Israel, how this concept of Jewish power, the concept of power as a good in and of itself that doesn't need and doesn't call for any moral restraints, 
we started to see it as a political power and a political party, that was accepted into the mainstream. And even before October 7th, we saw that it led to bloodshed. Bloodshed. It led to bloodshed within and an allowance of bloodshed within the, the Arab-Israeli community and bloodshed that was legitimized by many figures within the government of Israeli extremists attacking Palestinians. That Those actions that happened here, in literally in my backyard in Israel, I see them as part of this same test and part of this same conception, this misconception of of what Jewish power is all about. The idea that we need to just have as much power as possible and exercise it as strongly as possible, and we don't need to bother ourselves with any moral limitations. But now, now, post-October 7th, this test that maybe we had beforehand the chance to to practice at, to get good at, but we ignored, it, it has returned really right in our face. And this test of power challenges us on two very important levels in our world post-October 7th. First, there is a challenge of how, and there is a challenge of whether. There is the challenge of how to fight morally against an immoral enemy. This is a very, very difficult challenge. And, and people can debate, and people can take different positions on how good Israel is doing at that, and how poorly Israel is doing at that, but what needs to be recognized is, first of all, that the asymmetry of this conflict makes it extraordinarily difficult. And number two, that this is a conversation that's going on in Israel. You can say that they're making the wrong decisions at the end of the day, but there's no question that this is something, this is a live conversation. I have to say, as far as my own, as I see it, again, as someone who has no qualms about criticizing Israeli policy, I'm very proud very proud of how the the Israeli military establishment has been very clear that they are doing their utmost not to target civilians. That doesn't mean that civilians have been killed. They have been killed, and many have been killed, and it is tragic. But that is uh, an outgrowth of the way that Hamas is fighting us. But the fact that the Israeli military establishment says that we are not aiming to and we don't target and we do everything we can and we go out of our way to do. Again, that's a, a, a big debate. People can take different sides of that. But the fact that Israel is struggling with that, I think there's no doubt that Israel is struggling with. That's the first challenge of the how. Then there's the second challenge, the more fundamental challenge, and that's the challenge of whether. Whether Israel needs to try to act morally, not how to act morally, but whether when we're facing such depravity, such immorality, does Israel really need to still play by the rules? And you hear voices that say, against this enemy, there's no such thing as morality. At this point, all we need to respond with is just pure power, because that's all they understand, and that's all that's understood in this world, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. These were the very ideas that Rabbi Herzog was coming out against. This was the very attitude that Jacob, our forefather, was coming out against. These are the clay Hamas. These are the very tools of Hamas. And perhaps what Hamas would like more than anything is for us 
to abandon who we are and to adopt the hands of Asav and to start to fight this battle with the hands of Asav. And that, as we have said, to do that is a threat to our existence and it's a threat to our identity. It's a threat to who we are as the Jewish people. What, what I see as an incredible thing is that I think that in the context of this issue, as difficult as it is, as much as Jewish lives are on the line, Jews in Israel, Jews outside of Israel, recognize that this is something that we need to hold on to. Again, there are extremist voices within Israel, but the mainstream, the military leadership, the parents who are sending their children to war and who are not seeing them all come home can tell you how many funerals I've been. I've been in more funerals in the last two months than my whole life. My whole life. Last night, I was at a heartbreaking funeral of a beautiful young boy who was a fighter. He was a warrior, but he was also a gentle, gentle soul. And Israeli soldiers and Israeli parents and Israeli military establishment understand this is what our identity is. This was a soldier who could wake up early in the morning to pray and to study a page of Talmud a day, to study Dafyomi before he went into battle, before he risked his life, and, and ultimately before he lost his life. So I, I think the very powerful voice that we are hearing within Israel today is holding on to this kol Yaakov, is holding on to the qualitative approach, is holding on to the moral and to the ethical approach, even when we are suffering for it in a very extreme way. And and so I feel like I have a certain amount of optimism that that as we come out of this, and when we come out of this, and when we apply these questions outward, that we'll also be able to see that, that, you know, that we'll also be able to see that when we talk about where our weapons are going, we need to maintain these same kinds of of moral commitments that we are struggling with and that we are and that we are maintaining now. Um and and I just want to finish by going back to to Yehuda. This brings us back to our parsha and this brings us back to to Yehuda. Because Jacob and with this we will we will end. Jacob rejects Simon and Simeon and Levi. He rejects Shimon and Levi. He rejects them as leaders. He doesn't reject them as children. He maintains them as children, but he rejects them as leaders because of their anger and because of their revenge. We can't have our leaders working through Yedei Esav, working through the hands of Esau. It can't be. And so Jacob passes them over and moves on to his next son, and he chooses Yehuda to lead. And why is Yehuda the one who is chosen? Because Yehuda knows how to admit his mistakes and how to assume responsibility. We see it again and again with Yehuda in the story of Tamar, with Yehuda in the story of Joseph. Um, we see again and again that Yehuda has the ability to take a step back, to admit his mistakes, and to assume responsibility. Now, he still has his hands. It says, He has hands, and when he needs to, Yehuda knows how to attack. When he needs to, he knows how to attack in order to defend. But when it is justified, not out of revenge, not out of anger, but 
if you look at what Jacob focuses on with the powers of the lion, it's really, it's quite remarkable because you think of the lion, the power of the lion, think of the power to, to rip its, its prey apart and to, and to attack. And what Jacob here speaks about is actually something very different. You, O Judah, your brothers shall accede to you. Your hand shall be on the nape of your foes. Your father's son shall bow low to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From prey, my son, you have risen. He talks about not the attack, but the retraction. The power of the lion is not expressed in its attack. Even someone very, very weak can attack, and someone very weak feels like they always need to attack. But the power of the lion is to know when attack is needed and when you can step back and when you can move back and when you can rest. And so what really my my prayer and my blessing for all of us is that in, in these dark days, we take we take on the mantle of Judah. We take on the mantle of Yehuda as 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 our model of leadership, not anger, not revenge, to know how to admit mistakes and take responsibility for them, to know how to defend ourselves morally and how to act and to work for peace morally. And I pray that that these are lessons that we take with us now and that we also continue to take with us in the future, please God, in, in more peaceful times. So I want to thank all of you for, for listening so much. And, and now we'll open up the floor to questions. Um, I'd be very, very happy to answer any questions you have, um, certainly about the more practical aspects of my activism or, or anything else that you have to ask. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Friedman. Um, yes, like you mentioned, we'd love to open it up to questions or comments. Um, please feel free, anyone, to raise your hand and we can call on people to unmute um, or you can always use the chat as well. Um, so I see that there's a question. There are a few questions on the chat. I'll I'll respond to them in the meantime. Thank you. Um, they're not on the chat. I, re I receive them as direct messages. Oh, so do people want me to answer these direct messages to everyone? Yes. Okay. Um, so one question I was asked is, don't you think there are a lot of Jews who have a double standard in which they think they must act morally towards Jews, but not towards non-Jews, especially Arabs and Iranians? Um, I think there are a lot of people who have double standards. Absolutely. I think a, a lot of those people are Jews. A lot of those people are, are all kinds of other people. I think the double standards is something that human beings seem to have a, a real knack at. And, and Jews are no different. And, and I think we need to aspire differently. And, and I think that um, to me, it's very clear when you look at the Torah, uh, that the Torah has an ethic of war. Um, and and the ethic of war that was given in the times of the Torah isn't the correct ethic for now, just as the the any of the laws of the Torah as they were given then is not the Judaism that we that we practice now. Judaism has is a is a Torah Chaim. That's the the group that myself and Rav Shmuley are are part of together and really Rav Shmuley um created and founded. Torah Chaim means that the, it's a Torah of life, which also is, is about the ethic of the Torah and also is about the, the development of the Torah. But, but I think when understood correctly, at least to me, it's very clear that the Torah has demands of, of ethics in war. 
of, of sanctity and purity in war, which is not only related to Jews, which is related to non-Jews, and which is related to enemies, which is related to enemies and enemies who also want to destroy us or enemy nations. There are still moral limits and, and moral guidelines. Um, I think there are double standards, and I think there are also moral failures, again, of all human beings, and we need to to draw on the best that our tradition has to offer in order to in order to aspire to the best we can be. Sandra? Yes, hi. Thank you so much for your talk and for the work that you're doing. Um, this is a follow-up question, actually, to what you were just asked. Could you um, talk further about the issue of quantity versus quality um, of power in regard to the, re the response right now that the Israeli government and military is giving to um, Hamas? Um, I am, of course, concerned about how the quantity seems to be overwhelming or overtaking the the question of or category of quality. And I'd like to hear you talk some more about that. Um, absolutely. I, I, I think, um, first of all, I want to reiterate what I said, that it's tragic. Um, I am certainly not a party as you can imagine from my words, um, I, I don't agree with those voices that say um, we need to completely wipe out Gaza and, and ignore any difference between combatants and non-combatants. That said, um, there is a way in which um, the the focus on on quality here might actually lead to to greater quantity of casualties, and in, in some sense. Again, the the numbers are are horrifying, but but in in some sense, a single innocent human being is also horrifying. I am horrified by the unjustified killing of of one human being and of ten human beings and of one child and of and of ten children. And in Jewish tradition, every single human being is every single human being is an entire world. And so, and that's part of the quality, right? That's part of the quality thing. So so twenty thousand. Is, is awful and one is completely awful. But when, as long as, I'll say like this, as from my perspective, as long as what is really guiding the Israeli uh, military response is this is what must be done in order to end the genocidal threat against the Jewish people, then I can see the, the moral justification for that. And I, I think that anyone who denies the genocidal threat against the Jewish people, where Hamas killed as many people as they possibly could. But if they would have been able to, you know, if if Israel wouldn't have had any arms, if Israel would be a demilitarized state on October 7, then I wouldn't be here giving this talk either. Um, there was there was no sense of wanting to to stop at a certain military goal in Hamas's attack. It was a genocidal attack of we will kill as many people as we possibly can without any and that is Hamas's goal. That is their that is their stated goal. They don't even hide it. And so, as much capacity as they have to do that, they will do it. And so, I think there is absolutely a moral justification to say we can't allow a situation where that's where where that's a possibility. I think it's again. I think it's tragic. I think the tragedy and the moral responsibility lays at the feet of Hamas. That doesn't mean that we can just do whatever we want and act however we want. It means we need to do our utmost. 
but we but we need to be we need to be clear about it. If Hamas's leaders now would all give themselves up to the to the Israeli army to be judged, not to be killed, they would all surrender <laughs> and say, We are we we have given up the the Gazan Strip will be given over to someone else. We don't know who, but we as Hamas have absolutely no moral legitimacy and we are giving up. There would not be a single Gazan who would be hurt. There wouldn't be a single one. And if they would have done that before October 7th or a day after slaughtering thousands of Israelis in cold blood, the same thing. There would not be a single Gazan hurt. And so there is, again, there is a moral responsibility we have but we can't ignore the moral responsibility that Hamas has for those for those deaths. And and I, I wish I wish that the world would exert all of its pressure so that Hamas would would give up um, as you know and 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 be and be destroyed. I mean I don't I don't even need them to be destroyed. I don't mind if they would go in and sit in jail. But that that the Gazan people shouldn't be led by those who are leading them to genocide and who are taking every single resource that was given to them over the last 18 years and dedicating it to that genocide. May I follow up quickly with the question about how you respond then to the accusation that uh, Israel is practicing genocide as well? I think um, I think it's it's false. I, I think that that it is that it is false um, and specious and and unsubstantiated and and unbased. Um, I think that people have been accusing Israel of genocide for a long time. It didn't start. Um, people have been accusing Israel of, of all kinds of different genocides in Gaza, a slow genocide in Gaza. There have been accusations and and all of those accusations willfully ignore, willfully ignore um, the the moral responsibility of, of the other side. Because if Israel was interested in genocide, then what I said before a minute ago wouldn't be true. If Israel was interested in, in the genocide of the Palestinian people, then they wouldn't accept the um they wouldn't accept the 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 giving up. I'm missing the 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 English word for what do you how do you say? I lost some of my English. Surrender? Surrender, that's the word I'm looking for. The Israel wouldn't wouldn't accept the surrender of, of Hamas because they want to commit genocide, but Israel doesn't. Israel doesn't want to. I think the the large again there are extremists. Those extremists have are empowered by these kinds of things, but the majority, the the very very large majority and consensus of Israelis would be very happy to lay down our arms and would be very happy to live side by side with with Palestinians. And and by the way. If Israelis were convinced that we could live safely, and and this is something that polls have shown consistently for decades, if Israelis were convinced that we could live peacefully side by side, and that and that Hamas had or that the Palestinians had abandoned the the dream of destroying Israel, then a large majority of of, of Israelis would also be willing to to accept a Palestinian state as as Israeli leaders were in 1947. Thank you. There is one more question here, if you want me to read it out. Sure. Uh, um, does the Torah or our rabbis address how to respond when circumstances such as those of today lead Jews to dismiss spiritual vision and purpose, such as you have framed for us as naive or foolish, when fear and threat encourage an abandonment of these voices in 
um, in favor of the tools of power. This is a very real challenge for us today. I agree, obviously. I, I think it is for for me um, as a as as a rabbi. I feel like it is the challenge, and, and and for my thinking about about Israel, I think it is it is one of the major challenges that I try to engage in. That um, that we have to a very um, we have we as I said we fail at too many of these tests. We do not have the the confidence of a line of Judah that we can be moral. Now, I agree. I I understand where that's coming from. I understand that that the Jewish people are a traumatized people. I understand that we're we're deeply deeply afraid of another Holocaust in a very real way. And and obviously, events like October seventh prove that thesis over and over again. The idea that we are um, we are at constant existential threat. It's very very hard. You know, when you think of Maslow's pyramid, when people feel like their lives are in danger, it's very hard for them to get to the peak of the pyramid and to speak about um, and to speak about morality. Um, and and I think you know if you picture the the pyramid of Maslow, I think that Judaism that the the ethic of Jewish power actually actually flips the pyramid and says that our power is. And this is what Ben Gurion was saying, and this is what Rabbi Herzog was saying, that our power is based on that. How do you convince people of that? I don't know. I'm trying. I'm trying to convince people of it every single day um, by by talking, by education, by writing, um, by by speaking to you all, and um, and and you speak to others. Um, the prophets tried also. But they failed. The prophets failed. They did their best, but they failed, and and so we we know. We have to do our best, and uh, and whether we fail or not isn't necessarily up to us. We certainly do, do need to do our best, and I I extend my hand in um, in in solidarity and partnership to anyone willing to take it and, and to take up because I really do feel like this is this is the challenge of Jewish power. This is the challenge of Jewish sovereignty, which we didn't face for two thousand years, and now we have. This is what brought me to Israel. We have the opportunity to do it, and and. And please, God, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do it right. We'll do better. Thank you so much. Um, Rabbi Friedman, thank you so much for leading us in this uh, class and learning today. And thank you all for being here. Um, our next program will be January 4th, Introduction to Dreams and Kabbalah with Dr. David Sanders. So we hope you can all tune into that as well and hope you all have a good rest of your day. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybatemidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemidrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.